Well, good morning, church. Some of you know, I think I've used stories before, that I used to coach high school basketball. And I was younger, so I was maybe a little overzealous. Um, I've matured, I think, a little bit since then. But I remember one game in particular where we were getting blown out. And we had missed, I don't know, 15 free throws or something. It's late in the game. One of my best players is on the line. He shoots the first free throw. He misses it. And I just shout out, make your free throws. He gets the ball back. Right in the middle of the game, looks over at me and says, is that what we're supposed to be doing? The sarcasm was well appreciated. That's kind of one of my languages. Um, And the point received. And today's sermon is a little bit like that. And so what I want to guard against is you hearing me from the sidelines telling you to do things that you already know that you should be doing. We are, we are in this together because a lot of times it's not the knowing what to do. It's the doing that is the hardest part of the Christian life. Because most preaching, I think good preaching is less about giving you information and more about just reminding us. We just need reminders because we forget constantly what we're doing. And so every Sunday morning, we gather as a reminder that Christ lives. We we remind ourselves to renew the covenant, so to speak. We remind ourselves that we love each other. I was sitting here watching you guys come in and just watching how many hugs there were. Right, we gather as a reminder that, man, we need each other. We love each other. We, we battle for six days, and we gather to remind ourselves of the truth of God's word. Now, in seminary, they teach you how to arrange nice, neat sermons, and you give a nice intro, and you get three points, they rhyme, or they, you know, words that, uh, that, that draw your mind somewhere in similar uh, sounds, um, and then a nice conclusion. Well, uh, some of Paul's texts don't lend themselves to that. Because if you, if you read enough of the, the Bible, you know that Paul sometimes just gets to a point where he just gives a list. Boom, 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 boom. It's almost like he just overflows with instruction. And so today's text, and my guess is next week's text as well, is going to have a little bit of that feel, kind of this machine gun of commands. Um, and I remember early in my, my preaching career, I think I used the word 11thly at one point. I don't think we'll get there this morning. Uh, if we do, I promise you they will be very, very uh, short, quick hitters. Yeah, thank you, Gary. So in this next section that we're about to undertake, Paul gives, in the English translations, about 20 different commands. Now, the Greek combines a couple of these, so it's a little bit less overwhelming. Uh, but it, it's like he overflows with this response that we should have to all the theological truth that he has given in the previous 11 chapters. And the theme this morning is love, and not just the way we feel about one another, that that's included, but how we express it to one another. But this is not out of left field. It's not like Paul just forgot his train of thought. There has been a building up to get us to this point. A lot of theology, this is Paul's writing in a nutshell. Ephesians is a a good example. Three chapters of theology, three chapters of practice. We read it in Romans, 11 chapters of theology, 12 through 16 is practice. And so Paul is always saying, make your free throws, but he's telling us how to do it and giving us instructions for it. So follow the flow. 1 through 11, all of this theology, this deep theology about God's practical work in salvation. And we love that because we can kind of keep it at arm's distance a little bit. But the second half that gets practical, it's now our responsibility to respond. And that's where it gets a little bit tough. And so chapter 12 marks this transition to how we are to live. And he starts off by saying, live your life as a living sacrifice. You see the oxymoron there um, as we've given ourselves to God in service. 
And it begins with humility, how we relate to one another, how we view one another. Uh, humility is not thinking less of self, it's just thinking of self less. And then Paul illustrates that humility as it plays itself out in the church, as we use our gifts, as we appreciate other people's gifts. There are no small gifts. And our humility not just expressed in how I appreciate Grant's gift, but in the fact that I use my own because the church needs my gift too. It's selfish for me to not use my gift and to plug in. It actually is detrimental to the body because we are all needed. And today we're going to look a little bit more directly at how we relate to each other in community. And so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're just going to kind of go through these quick hitters. And, and Paul starts off in verse 9 and he says, your love needs to be genuine. Now the word there can also be sincere. And there's some historical evidence that that word sincere comes from a combination of words, sin, Sarah, without wax. And the picture is of, of, a, of a pot or of pottery, these clay vessels that if you wanted to test their authenticity, you could scratch it. And if wax came off, it meant that there were cracks and that that's how they kind of covered up the cracks. And so it shouldn't scratch. So our love for each other should be sincere. It should not have a veneer. It should not have a wax covering. Because think about how often we love people hypocritically. We smile when we're around them. We kind of feign an interest in their lives. We, you know, the, 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 the fake laughter, and then they leave, and we turn around like, man, I can't stand that person. I, I've never had that thought that's never entered into any way that I've engaged with people. But we are over polite, but it's not a genuine love. It is a love that I, I love this person in the business world, but it's because I can use them for something. Or I love this person, but I really just do it out of obligation. But there's no sincerity to it. And so Paul starts off by saying this love that we have for one another needs to be genuine. Now, sometimes this is an acquired taste. I don't know if any of you guys have ever had what I call ministry friends. They are people in your life that you have just made a cognitive decision. I am going to love them. They are very difficult to love. So one of the uh, young men that I used to work with at, at the school where I taught, he was new to the area, he was gruff, he was grumpy, he wasn't pleasant, but I knew he was lonely. And so I committed lots of prayer, and I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love this guy. He doesn't have any other friends. And so I invited him to lift weights with me in the weight room. I invited him to grab cups of coffee all the time. But I always finished our interaction just completely worn out. Like, it wasn't fun for me. But over time, he got less gruff, and I learned how to love him better. And now, he's one of my top three closest friends. Like, if I needed something in a pinch, he may be my first phone call. Fiercely loyal, love being around him. But I had to learn to love him genuinely. I had to die to some sin in my life that thought he needed to love me a certain way, and if it wasn't enjoyable, I wasn't going to reciprocate. And he, that, that love slowly softened him up in some areas, and we became great friends. Well, Paul's next thing is he says, hate evil, abhor it, which is part of what it means to love one genuinely. Because where love is genuine, evil is not tolerated. It's not covered up. It's not dismissed. It's despised and it's rejected. When we love sincerely, we hate false motives. We hate manipulation. We hate gossip. We hate dishonesty, even when we see it in ourselves. And we don't just hate it in others. We despise it when, it's, when, when our heart is the source of where it comes from. And so this means that love has to be informed. It's not a blind love that just loves everything. And so young people, you hear this phrase all the time, love is love. It's not biblical. Love is discerning. 
Love loves what is good, true, and beautiful, and it despises anything that is evil. And you have to be informed if we are going to love genuinely. So ponder that one for a minute. I'm going I'm to pause a little bit. Gary gets on me because I talk too fast, which is true. My daughters get on me because I talk too fast. Well, look at verse 10, and I find this verse fascinating here because it's loaded. Paul tells, them, or tells us that genuine love includes how we feel towards one another. I find this interesting because most of the time when we talk about biblical love, it's agape. It's this love, this unconditional love that God has and this unconditional love that we should give one to another. But Paul uses a combination of words here that basically mean a brotherly affection that is expressed in a family. Now, so affection, it's not just a love that we say, I know I love them, but it is included the way that we genuinely feel about one another. It's family love. Now, put this in its context. The Roman church is an assimilation of a ton of different cultures and people coming together who are not, by nature, sharing the same interests. They don't have that family connection. Specifically, we think of the Gentiles and the Jews. They did not like each other. And all of a sudden, under Christ, they're supposed to be unified. But this was thousands of years of hatred that had built up. The Jews viewed the Gentiles as dogs. The Gentiles viewed the Jews as these legalists who were trying to take away their bacon. And so you had, that's, that's fighting words right there. That's the type of hatred that they had for one another. And so when Paul says, treat each other as brothers and sisters with that type of affection, it's more than just get together and worship in unity. It's that you guys are now family. This would have been shocking to them. But this isn't, again, out of left field. All of Romans has mostly been putting Jews and Gentiles back together. Chapter one, you're all under God's wrath. And then he weaves his way. You're all sinners deserving of hell. You're all children of Abraham by faith. There's one people of God. You've been grafted together, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so all of this has kind of come together. There's one people of God through faith, united together, not a mystical union, but a reality because you now all share in Christ. You are his children. You are brothers and sisters together. And so that word, I think that original audience would have been like, whoa, wait a minute. This is more than just some sort of cognitive love that we have. We have a genuine affection. And that's what's expressed when I see you guys coming in and hugging. There's a genuine affection. It's more than just like, hey, how's your week? It's like, man, how are you doing? I missed you. And so I love to see that as we express that together. Because Paul doesn't want just lip service. It's real. And, and this is the important thing because the, the, the new covenant comes with higher expectations, doesn't it? So I, I remember thinking when I was a kid, like, man, the Old Testament is just loaded down with all these laws. How do you keep it? The New Testament's actually heightened. I love measurabilities. I've told you before, I would have been a fantastic Pharisee. Like, I love, like, oh, yeah, look how holy I am. Make this many free throws. Great. I'm a very good basketball player. Think about how much more difficult it is as you guys grow, like with my kids. It's much easier if I look at Abby. She says, what time do I need to be home? And I give her a, be home at 11. But don't you hate it as you got older and your parents are like, I don't know, be home at a responsible hour. Like, well, what time's responsible? My responsible and your responsible are not the same thing. So I like the standards. But in the New Testament, it's not just don't commit adultery. It's don't have a desire to commit adultery. It's not just give 10%. It's be a generous and cheerful giver. And so it's not just express a posture of unity. It's have family affection for one another. 
And so it's the New Testament, it's actually harder in some ways to live in the Sermon on the Mount type of ethic. And God knows that, so he indwells us with the Holy Spirit to help. But the expectations have been raised here. The family is coming together. Next, what does genuine love seek to do? It seeks to honor, honor others more. And again, this is an expression of humility because we love accolades and we get jealous when people are going, man, he's a great preacher. You're like, well, what about me? But that's not what we're supposed to be outdoing, almost like it's a competition. Who can check off more points in praising the other people around them? I remember when I first started teaching, and I'm 22 years old. I don't know my head from a hole in the ground at this point. And I remember my boss pulled me aside. He said, Nate, I'm going to give you some life advice. If you really want to impact this school, you will find the things that people do really, really well, and you will tell everybody about those things. You'll praise the teachers. You'll praise the students. And as I've gotten older, I've I tried to do that. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at one of Emma's basketball games, and in between games, there was a boys game, seventh grade team, inner city school, young coach, you know, had a bunch of seventh grade boys around him, no parents in the stands, no parent support. And I loved the way he coached. Like he's high five in the kids. When he called a timeout, these seventh graders were just in awe of this guy. He's hugging them. He's hard on them where he needs to be, but he just had a demeanor with these boys. And so after the game, he's walking out and the guy's probably 20, 25 years old, and I remembered being a young coach, and I just said, hey, I said, I really, like, you're doing a great job. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're doing with these boys, but they adore you. They're, they respond to you. They listen to you, and he just looked at me and just gave me a big hug, and he said, I, he said, you don't understand. He said, I don't have any parental support. I never have older people. Don't know when I became one of those, but he goes, I, I've never had, old, I don't ever have any older people appreciate what I'm doing, and he just sat there, and he's like, thank you so much. And then on his way out, an hour later, he walked by and gave me another hug. He's like, man, you'll never know how much that meant. He's like, I think I can get through the season now. And he left. And I realized, man, the the power of that type of word. And, And so I saw this play out when I was put in charge of building a fitness program at the school. And three kids were coming. And I'm like, I don't know how to build this. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna start just creating a culture. So I went and I found three, I don't know if I can, this is politically incorrect. I don't know, three kind of chunky boys. And, and I said, hey, you three, you and me after school every day. And they're like, I said, no, let's go. I said, come on. And they're fine. They kind of slough in there. And the cool thing about 14 and 15 year old boys, when they first start lifting weights, they see progress almost immediately, almost weekly. And so they started seeing progress. Nobody else was in there. It was just the three of us. Started lifting. They started slimming up. They started getting confidence, started praising them to other people. I'm like, man, you should come see Connor lift. And they're all like, Connor? I was like, man, it's awesome. He's throwing around. We started, you know, when kids would lift, a, uh, they'd bench press a plate for the first time. We'd all gather around. And, and what happened is this culture became magnetic because everybody understood how hard they were working. Nobody was tearing them down. They were getting excited for one another. They're like, man, you should see what so-and-so squatted today. So-and-so set a new vertical record. Next thing you know, and I'm not exaggerating, within two years, I had 180 kids in this fitness program. And it wasn't, anything other than everybody just created an environment that was just positive. And I think that's what we see in Acts chapter two when the church grows. I think the community is saying, man, they're living together. They're giving to each other. There's joy. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And it says, and God added to their number daily. Like there was just something magnetic about this community. 
And if the church began to, uh, you know, that, that began to be noticed in a community where there's positive noise and love and honor, and we're doing this almost as a competition, not in a lying sort of way, but man, you should see the way Chance plays the drums. And you should hear the way Gary brings the word and teaches. Uh, and we began to do this on a regular basis. Think of the excitement that would take place in the church. And I think a big key is take our eyes off self, right? That we have the eyes to look around and there's this genuine affection. We do this with our kids. Those we love, we want to honor. How often are we walking around and like, man, you should see my kid shoot a free throw. I mean, Grant's telling me about Jackson. Apparently he's dunking. He came in and he's like, my kid is a, is a, he's a phenom. But we're quick to honor those we love. We should be doing that in the church. Verse 11 and 12, Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, there's some danger in these words, isn't there? How many people have been wounded by those who are overzealous? They express a bit too much fervency. But notice that Paul qualifies these things by saying fervent in spirit. Now, it could mean the Holy Spirit. There's no article there. It also could just mean fervent internally, that it's not just an external show. But then he qualifies it. He tempers it, serving the Lord. And this guards against the idea that excitement is the measure of holiness. Jonathan Edwards says, zeal is no measure of salvation. Everyone has a religious spasm in their life. And so the measure of zeal is that it is directed properly in service. People who are like, oh man, I'm all about evangelism. And they never evangelize. That's just lip service. People are like, this is New Year's resolutions in a nutshell. Right? How many get so excited about something because the calendar changed and there's no follow through? And so Paul's saying the service of the Lord is the measure of this fervency and zeal. And so it's not in these pep rallies. It's not in programming because we've got to be careful. The faster anything moves, the more important it is that it's directed properly. Think about an airplane or a car right? You can pick up all kinds of speed. And there's been a lot of people that have been wounded by those that are overzealous. Now, Christian apathy will destroy a church, but so will misdirected zeal. And so we need to model it in the way we serve the Lord. Some people come into church and they think church is a home remodel job. Break out the sledgehammer and just start whacking things down. When sometimes you just need a scalpel. Like a surgeon can be just as excited about his work, but he's not going to use a sledgehammer to speed things up. And so may we have the wisdom to know how that zeal needs to be expressed. So now Paul gets a little bit heavy. I told you, it's kind of a machine gun uh, approach to the sermon, but there is a flow. I mean, it works through. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. These are the keys to perseverance, which gives stability to our fervency and to our zeal. Because too often, my zeal is derailed by one setback. So I, I've committed multiple times to learn to play the guitar. And I can't do the, I, I can be coordinated with a, with a ball. I'll put a ball on my hand, I'm great, but I can't do this. Ah, I give up. It doesn't take much. And so how do we find that perseverance? We do it through joy, patience, and prayer. They are the stabilizers. They're the coal that's constantly being shoved into the engine of the train so that it might keep moving. Because it takes work to stay warm, doesn't it? Think about it in your marriage. If we lived our lives only because of fervency and zeal, because we initially came to know the Lord, most of us have come off that mountaintop a long time ago. So if you've ever gone camping, you know that it takes work to stay warm. You're constantly gathering wood. You're constantly chopping it up. Someone's constantly putting it in the fire. 
And it's the same thing in the furnace of our lives as well. The prayer and the joy and the hope as we're putting it in, reminding ourselves, stay the course, stay warm, stay hot. If you leave a fire unattended and you stop doing the work, it will go out and there will be no embers left. And so the point here, I think, is Paul's emphasizing the role that we play in a community. The entire context is pointing to the fact of how we relate to one another. Are we helping people stay excited, or are we a wet blanket every time they get excited about something? We have to fight this Americanized, individual approach to life that we live as lone rangers. We're not. We need each other desperately. And so many young people, and maybe it's shifted, They'll say things like, man, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church. To which I respond, then you only love half of Christ because you don't get the head without the body. This I get is difficult, but it comes with Christ. We are now one family adopted in. Imagine an adopted child coming in and saying, thanks for adopting me, dad, but I don't, I'm not gonna really be brothers and sisters with my siblings. It doesn't work that way. And so Paul's going to turn his attention to some practical ways in which we can do these things in community and encourage one another. And he starts off, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints, which is one of the ways that the church endures, is that we utilize mutual assistance to help and express love to one another. It is easy to criticize the church, but have you ever seen any organization respond to crisis the way the church does? Just think about it in your own life. Some of you who have experienced crisis and all of a sudden their casseroles are popping onto your porch like crazy. We love to support each other with food, but resources and time and somebody gets a flood in their basement and it's the church that comes in and helps with the cleanup. The church, we, again, there's, there's hurricanes in Louisiana and the government's got to do what the government does, but man, churches, doors are open. People are sleeping in the foyers. They're feeding people. The church has a wonderful history of doing this. What do non-Christians do when life gets hard? I've always wondered that. Where do they turn? So it was a lot. Gary, I'm going to give one of these little pregnant pauses for you. And I'm sure that felt like a fire hose. But I really want to kind of end this message focusing on hospitality. Because I think Paul, at the end, he says, here is the platform. Here is the arena where this is going to be practiced most clearly. Now, that word for hospitality... It comes from a compound word that means love of stranger. And so think about what Paul's saying here. Love your brothers and sisters. We're like, yeah. Love the stranger. Yeah. Make your free throws. You know that we're supposed to do this. How do we go about doing it? Because hospitality has always been a mark of God's people. Think about how many times in the Old Testament somebody's showing up at somebody's house unannounced, lots of pop-ins, and they stop everything. They don't have microwaves and ovens, but they're making entire meals for people. We see it with Abraham when he entertains um, the angels and one of them you know, being a theophany or Christophany. We see Lot opening his home, protecting his guests from the rabid sodomites. We see Rahab opening her home and she offers protection to the spies and Abigail treating David and his men to a meal. We see the widow of Zarephath who's poor and owns nothing, still hosting Elijah. This is because God's people have always understood the other side. They were wanderers in a wilderness, all of them with no home for so long. Joseph was stuck in Egypt as an outsider, Israel being formed and reformed through exile and wandering. And as a result, God's people have always been asked to be empathetic to the traveler. Look at Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. 
It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, what is the motivation for hospitality? It's that phrase, I am the Lord your God, because it's loaded. All of the Israelites, any good Jew, would have known that that is the precursor to the Ten Commandments. And so Exodus 22 says this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, for the saints in the Old Testament, hospitality flowed right from the center of who God is and what he had done for them. Basically saying, you didn't have a home, you weren't a people, you and I were enemies, and I have brought you into my people, I have purchased you into my home. You need to now express that same love to strangers. And it doesn't change in the New Testament. In fact, I actually think it's heightened again. We are a people who have been adopted. We see even more clearly into a family that we have no business belonging to. We continue to practice hospitality to a greater degree because we owe our entire lives to God's welcoming of us into his presence. And for those who understand this, hospitality is not a burden. It's a glorious overflow of gratitude to a God who loves strangers, redeems them, and adopts them. I believe that hospitality is the greatest expression of gospel-infused love and godly affection for people. I think it's why he lays it down as, a, as Paul lays it down as a trait for elders. Because Paul recognized the home is one of the best places to do ministry. He understands that the posture of an elder towards his stuff, his space, and his home is indicative of his heart. And a shepherd or a group of elders that practice hospitality are usually surrounded by sheep who practice hospitality, who then impact an entire community. Now, Paul is not talking about Martha Stewart entertainment here. Back then, there were no holiday inns. In fact, the, 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 any place you could stay, these inns were often brothels. And again, this goes with the abhorring evil, right? If I can protect the Christian from even having to go to that place, invite them into my house. And so that's how people travel in the Christian community. That's how these missionaries got from place to place. Soon the church began to set up official hospices or places that were, it was almost like a business, but it was protected where they could come. And then those hospices during the Crusades, they became hospitals. And you see the overlapping of words there. A place where one can receive refreshment, care, and refuge, and be taken care of. A place for healing. And I think that's what our home is today. Think about how many homes you've been into. I'm thinking at our house, how many tears have been shed on couches how many, how many angry shouts have been done in counseling? And hopefully people leave and it's like, oh, that was a refuge. And we see that through adoption and foster care, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. It can be just inviting neighbors in as they find a safe space. I remember getting a knock on my door about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and it was one of my students. And she's just bawling. And her stepdad had been getting violent. She didn't know where else to go. She knew where we lived. And so she just showed up, 2 o'clock in the morning. We said, come on in. We'll take care of all this other stuff in the morning. Here's, here's, a, here's a couch. We didn't have another spare room at that point. It was just one, one bedroom apartment. I said, here's a couch. Here's a blanket. Here's some food if you want it. We prayed. We'll talk through it, but you're safe. We'll deal with these things in the morning. I didn't really think anything of it. I'd forgotten we did it. And about five years ago, I got a letter, and she just talked about how impactful that was on her and her, that she had never in her whole childhood up to 17, had a place where she felt safe. She just came in, she felt safe. 
and the impact that it had. All I did was open the door and say, nobody's using the couch. You know, go ahead, lay down. And so long before the church had buildings and pulpits, it had homes. And homes have kitchens and kitchens have tables. And tables invite community and they express care. And so is there opportunities for, to, to do this? One of the greatest, I think, examples of the power of hospitality comes from Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you have read her book, uh, Unlike, or, um, Unlikely, I can't remember, that's the title, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert and How She Came to Christ. And she was a, uh, an entrenched member in the LGBT community. And she had written a letter one time, kind of bad-mouthing, I think it was Promise Keepers. And one of the local pastors got wind of it and just got in touch with her and said, hey, I think you have some miscommunications, but I'd love to just have you over for dinner and get to know you. We're in the same community. And she said she looked at that letter, had no idea what to do with it because he was expressing one of the things she was critiquing. And she realized, okay, if I'm going to be consistent, I better take him up on it. Went over. They didn't say come to church. They didn't even share the gospel right away. They just became friends. They just shared books. They shared a, a, a bottle of wine. And over time, like two-year period, she began to ask questions because that love was expressed and that table became a safe space for her to ask questions. And here's what she writes. She says, Ken and Floyd did something at that meal or those meals, she mentions one in particular, that has a long Christian history but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited a stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. If they had invited me to church at that first meal, I would have careened like a skateboard off a cliff and would have never come back. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. I firmly believe that more than anything else, if you want to impact your community, you'll invite people in. A Muslim is probably not coming to church with you. The cross, the whole washed in the blood thing is kind of odd. But man, they'll come over for a meal. Don't serve them ham. I had a friend who did that, invited some Muslims over and for Easter and served ham. Okay, don't do that. So understand some things. There's still some sensitivity there. But isn't it interesting what happens over a meal? It's a biblical theme. Christians eat. Like everywhere in the Bible, they are feasting for seven days. Like a, It's not like Christmas Day. It's like a week of eating. They do it better than we do it today for sure. But if you have a front door, If you have tables, chairs, and bread for sandwiches, you are qualified for effective ministry that really has a potential to impact the globe. Because what happens? Here, you're looking mostly at me or the back of someone's head. But around a table, you look people in the eyes and you understand their story. On a Sunday morning, it's mostly one person talking to you. But around a table, everybody has a voice. Now, many of you know this, but Kirsten and I ran college ministry out of our home. And we started at church with about eight kids. And I was like, eh, it's cold. It was winter. I was like, it's cold. I don't want to come out. Why don't you guys just come over to the house? It's just eight of you. And within a couple of months, it grew to about 40. And within a couple of years, we had about 80 kids. When we finished, we had 120 kids connected to the ministry. And we have a 1,100 square foot basement. And we would have 80 kids crammed in. Here's a picture, and I don't know if it translates, of the shoe pile. So I think we tallied up. There were a hundred and in that picture, I think there are 162 shoes. It's great. It was one of my favorite pictures. Now, I would love to say it was all rainbows and daisies. We had broken toilets, dropping water into the basement on all of our heads. We had holes in drywall. Colin busted a chair probably more than once. Well, I know once. Wrestling, I think, with somebody. But I love that picture. We had 985 different kids come into our house. 
We had 30 professions of faith. Kirsten estimates that she made 40,000 cookies during that time. We love people, and we apparently give them diabetes. <laughs> but it was a great season. Broken chairs, the whole deal, holes in the drywall. It was messy, and I would love to say I did it all with a smile. That is not entirely true. But one of the great benefits, not only to others, was the benefit to my family. Too often in the church, we silo off ministries. And this was something my girls, like Wednesday night was game time. If you ask my girls, Wednesday night was great. They view Colin and Chance as brothers because I've known them their whole life and they were over at the house all the time. The girls cleaned, Kirsten made cookies. I did the lesson, but it was family ministry. Everybody had a role. Even my three and four-year-olds felt like this was their, their ministry as well. So I got to model it with my kids. I got to do ministry with my kids. And hopefully that's a benefit that they take uh, with them as they leave. Now we could go on and on and talk about how the home could be used for ministry. But let me address a couple of practical concerns as we wrap up. What are the barriers? What are the barriers to hospitality? Why don't we do it more? And so I just looked inside. I just looked at me and it's like, why am I hesitant to do it? And the first is this. I like my stuff and I like my time. And it is tremendously inconvenient. And I grew up in a home that practiced hospitality, and so I saw it modeled. But as I got older, I began to realize this is expensive. And so Paul says, that's why he says you have to pursue it. The word he uses is the same word he uses in Philippians where he says, I'm pressing to take hold of Christ. Are we looking for opportunities for hospitality? Or are we just waiting for it to find us? Paul says you need to go pursue it because it is elusive, and it may come with a cost because it's expensive to feed another family. It's costly to fix things. And especially if they have kids, we found Kirsten and I got invited over far less when we had four little kids than when it was just the two of us. And my wife can be a handful, but she's not as much a handful as the other four. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm really, the, I'm the barrier to getting invited over. But I remember looking at all the marks on my walls when, when we have families over who had lots of kids. You know, they're not trying to tear things up. They just do they're like, oh, we got to repaint that wall. Oh, we got to take care of this. We got stains on my carpet. Well, a few years ago, I was walking down to the basement with a friend who was helping me with a sump pump. And he would get to the, there's like a worn spot at the bottom of the stairs. And he goes, he goes, oh, what happened there? And I said, oh, we ran college ministry out of the house. And we'd have, you know, on any given year, 2,000 kids come through the house. And this is where they step and they pivot. And he was like, and he was a believer. And he's like, oh, how cool is that? That every time you come down here, you're like, man, this house has impacted the kingdom. And I was like, you know, because part of me is like, it's a hole, I got to fix it. And he said, no, no, no. And I said, well, we get the carpet replaced. He said, don't do that. He said, this is like one of those stones of remembrance that's been placed in the wilderness that people go, look at what God has done. Like God is faithful. In spite of your attitude right now, God is faithful. It's a reminder where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. The second barrier for me sometimes is I just lack the love for other people that I should have. One theologian says that our level of hospitality is the greatest test of our love for others. Look at what Alexander Strauch writes. Hospitality is a concrete expression of Christian love and family life. Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. See all the themes that have been expressed this morning? A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. You see, when I open my home, I display love, but it's also given back to me. I would have been robbed by so many experiences on those Wednesday nights when I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. Whoa, what was that? Is that you? Oh, man. Okay, good. 
The spirit must have thought you guys are falling asleep. I'll wake back up. So I'm going to get my train of thought. But how I'm robbed as well, it's not just me giving. When I invite people into my home, like I get to be loved as well. And those thank you notes that come back and are encouragement and we share in this. So hospitality is just not from me to you. When people come in, it is enriching. And those college kids have given so much back to Kirsten and I in the impact they had on kids. I love that I could say, hey, you know, Abigail, find a guy who loves like Chance loves his wife. Or be like Colin. I don't know if I've ever said that one. <laughs> but find somebody who, 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 ha- who carries themselves with that modesty. And having those models, huge benefit to my family. My third thing is this. I'm just too busy. I just have other things going on. And when this happens, I I have to stop myself. I go back to 1 Peter. Look at these words. it's, 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 It's awesome. He says, the end of all things is at hand, right? We're almost done. What's he say? Therefore, be self controlled Think clearly. Be sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, right? The end of things are at hand. Love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So imagine saying, the end of things is at hand. Have somebody over for dinner. But that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, keep loving people from your home. And then look at what he says. He says, without grumbling. Now, I'm really good at practicing grumbling hospitality. Some of, you are, some of you are this way too. You're inviting people over and you're grumbling, you're cleaning things. And then as soon as they show up, hey, thanks for coming over. This is great, grab a seat. But your heart was not in it, right? It's that fake love that we were talking about earlier. And you do the thing and they leave and you're like, man, I'm glad they're gone. Whew, don't know how much I could do with that. And there are some people in life that are like that. They, it takes energy to love them. But my guess is those are the people that don't get invited over very often. That's who we should be doing hospitality for. It's easy for me to have Grant over. It's harder for me to have some other people over. Am I doing that sacrificially and with a genuine love? There's a lot of weirdos that have come into my house. And I remember at one point, and and have you ever had those moments where like every every decision in my life has led me to this moment? How did I get here? I'm teaching. We've got one one kid with some severe learning disabilities who is, is just... It was just uncomfortable at times by some of the comments he'd make. We had a, a, a young woman who had a gag reflex with her own spit, and so she would hold a bowl and just periodically, like, gag into the bowl, like all in the middle of the lesson. Had another girl, this is all at the same time, the same night. Had another girl who had severe anxiety that manifested itself with hiccups that were super loud and would last five to six seconds at a time. And and then we had a, you know, a kid who was in a wheelchair that, that kids carried down to the basement. I mean, it was a great, I'm not saying it wasn't great. It was just weird. We were like, I got gagging going on. I got hiccuping going on. Like this is not clean, sterile church ministry. And it was this idea that I was reminded that I, I think most hospitality is scruffy. It's just scruffy. It's messy. You're going to spill things. You get weird people coming in. People are like, oh, I don't know if you can say that in front of my children. I don't know you well enough, but this is what love of strangers invites. So let me remind you of this. Your home does not have to be perfect to have people over. In fact, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we say, my house is messy, I can't have people over. Young mothers, think of this. Sometimes you get invited over and everybody else's house is perfectly kept up. And what you leave thinking is, yeah, I can't do that. 
I can't do that. I, I got four kids. Well, guess what? If you have four kids, it's okay for your house to look like it has four kids in it. It's fine. In fact, I think it's actually better for people when they come in and they go, your house is messy, my house is messy. Your life is messy, my life is messy. I'm not saying make a mess so that you can do it, right? But there are some times where we clean up and we make a presentation because we're honoring people. And then there are some times where we make a presentation because we really want people to think a certain way about us. And I remember doing marriage counseling and a couple came over and, and after I married him, I got a letter and it said, thanks for the counseling, but more importantly, thanks for opening your home. It said the, our favorite thing was you inviting us to family worship and seeing how messy it was. Abigail was talking the whole time. You were sitting on Isabel because she was throwing a fit, like holding her down between almost like, you're going to love Jesus. <laughs> Emma was doing a handstand in the corner and, and they said, you just kept going because this is what you do. And they said, it was a reminder to us that, man, you don't have to have it all together to do this thing. And so, whereas I'm like, oh, my kids, I can't believe. They actually saw, well, that was cool, like, because that's normal life. That's what most of family devotions are, by the way. The point is, is don't let presentation trump people. Don't let Pinterest dictate what hospitality looks like. So here are a few questions to ask ourselves, a litmus test, and I promise you I'm wrapping up. How often do people just pop in? Because if you created a welcoming environment, the pop-in feels very natural to people. But we live in a culture where that doesn't happen very often. How often are people just ringing the doorbell and saying, hey, I was in the neighborhood, come in. But the Old Testament's just full of pop-ins. People weren't making reservations. They just showed up and everybody said, hold there, we'll go heat the oven up and we'll go grind the, the, the wheat and we'll make you a cake. Do you have an empty room? Is it empty because you need it or because you don't want to share it? When was the last time someone other than close friends or family spent the night? Missionaries, for example, that are in town for a little bit, they need a place, and they're like, ah, it's kind of awkward. How often do you offer your home to be used for group gatherings? Some of you have great homes to offer for group gatherings, and ministry can be done out of there. It's a great way to use your gifts. Now, I told you, a sermon like this can be a little disruptive, and I hope you don't say me having, uh, that I've got this figured out. But I had it modeled. My parents modeled this, and I still struggled with it. I remember coming home from college one, one day, and there was a strange woman sleeping on the couch. Mom and dad weren't home. I'm like, that's weird. I still don't know who it was. But I love the fact that my parents said their door was never locked. People were in and out all the time. It was a great testimony to me as a kid. This is what John Piper calls strategic hospitality. It's looking for opportunities. We're pursuing it, not just to have the friends over, but a hospitality that treasures people over stuff. Now look, hospitality is linked to God's grace and salvation. God graciously invites beggars to feast in the kingdom. Seriously, look inside just for a minute and see what he does. The gospel call is being invited into a family we don't belong to, an invitation to a marriage supper that we have no business getting into without knowing the host. As Christians, we don't get the option of being inhospitable. We can't blame it on our personalities, on our lack of resources or our preferences because our homes are a great platform for Paul, for us to express all that Paul has said, to love others, to honor them, to pray together, to encourage people. Let's be a church that pursues hospitality, that we might use our homes as a platform for proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. People may not come here, but people like to eat. As one pastor put it, Come on Sunday morning on the lookout for God, but leave Sunday morning on the lookout 
her people. Amen? Let's pray.